Assalamu alaikum. I'm Khalil Alika. And I'm Zahir Parker. And welcome to AccidentalMuslims.com. So, AccidentalMuslims.com is a, a movement, a platform where we showcase present and future leaders to help us live with purpose. And we believe that everybody has a story to tell. This podcast hopes to add value. So, welcome and enjoy. Assalamu alaikum. Walaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Shukran for, for being part of the Accidental Muslims team, not team, but the, but the community, online community, and I really appreciate it. Alhamdulillah, it's only a privilege to be here and a pleasure to meet you as well, brother. Do you like being called Arno? I see you also have Ashraf, so is it, is it for... Tell me about that. Yes, um, when I came back from overseas and I um, you know, made my shahada and I reverted to Islam, I came back as a Muslim and I had the Afrikaans name Arno that was given to me from birth. And what it actually means is um, a strong person like an eagle or like a leader or something like that in, in that regard. And when I came back, uh, my mom then had a meeting with one of her friends named Zainab Bean. And she is a radio producer and interviewer at Radio 786. And she wanted me to meet Zainab. So I went with my mom to this restaurant and we went to go sit down for a nice cup of coffee and I met Zainab. And we started talking and she told me that, you know, that you should actually get a Muslim name. And so we, the conversation led and so forth. And I inquired as to why it is important or why she would encourage me to get the name and, and all that. And eventually she said that a name that would suit you is Ashraf. At the time being, I did not really know what the name meant. So I decided that, you know, this might be a very good name for me um, because it actually just resonated with me without even knowing the, the meaning of the name. And then I decided that I'll accept Ashraf. And the meaning of the name is actually, it means uh, nobility. So a person that is noble and honorable and so forth, that, you know, in, in, in society. But the reason why I choose to use it is that whenever I meet people that are not Muslim and I introduce myself as Ashraf, and oftentimes I would say Shalom Alechem or I would say Assalamu Alaikum, meaning um, Shalom Alechem is the, the Hebrew way of saying Assalamu Alaikum, peace be upon you. Um, and when they ask what is my name, I would tell them that my name is Ashraf. And then they would ask, where does that name come from? Why did you choose that name? And so forth. So that is my doorway into performing uh, dawah sometimes. It's yes. fascinating. Alhamdulillah. Because you, you actually reverse engineered it. So people will actually ask you, why Ashraf? Um, Indeed. Uh, yeah, they'll see you and they'll say, hmm, but this, the, the name doesn't match who you actually are. Indeed. Especially I, in this community. Definitely. And I also choose to hold on to my, you know, my birth name at the end of the day because it is a beautiful meaning. And it's also something that I had to grow into, you know, um, having been born in a Christian family, you know, that was the name given to me. So I'm very proud of that name as well. But I think, you know, um, having both names at the end of the day tells people that, listen, I have a history, but I chose to completely remove my foundation and rebuild the man that I am today. So let's go back a little. Let's tell us about, can I call it Ashraf or Arno? I would prefer Ashraf. Ashraf. So Ashraf, tell me about your childhood. Let's go back. Yes. Tell us about your childhood, school, where did you grow up? Of course. I was born and raised in a Christian family. Uh, my mother was a beautiful singer. My father was the pastor of our church. And from a very young age, I was taught about all the prophets um, because it was something inherited to our community. It was something inherited to our household. The prophets were often echoed in, you know, in our house and in our walls. And we were often taught about the various prophets um, from Abraham and his sons, Noah and his ship and Moses and how he had led his people to safety. And also 
you know, internalizing these prophets and internalizing the stories that, that came with them and how they had to submit to this creator in order to gain salvation and to guide their people. And so from a very young age, that was something that resonated with me. But um, regarding my upbringing, I lost contact with my father when I was relatively young. Uh, my mom and my dad got divorced and I don't really have a connection with him anymore. So that's also something that, um, you know, took me away from, you know, that, that aspect or that means of growing up in a, in a complete household. Uh, from a young age, my mom and I, you know, we struggled. It was not easy for her being a single mother, you know, having to raise a child and to provide for this child. So for us as a child, when you ask about the schools, I moved around quite a few times um, to various primary schools. But my mom sought that for my high school, I should be in one high school. And then she dedicated herself to be able to provide for me then. So growing up, it has not always been lush and easy. Um, there were some very difficult times. But I think at the end of the day, that is what molds you into the man that you, that you become, or the person that you become, yes. So only you and your mom? Yes, yes. It was only me and my mom. Um, she then married another man now, a Muslim man as well, yes, once she, once she converted. So tell me about your family. I'm thinking you and your mom mm. finding Islam. Tell us, tell us that story. Of course. So what had happened was that I was met with a, a burning desire to follow my father's footsteps from a very young age because that was a means of me connecting to this man that I never really knew. And I found that just creating this image of this father figure being this pastor and this community leader is something that I also want to become and I want to be a better man through that. And in my early 20s, I found myself in a position of leadership at my church. And there were several churches that I also got involved in, um, depending upon where I found myself. And during this time, it was something that I was truly passionate about because it gave me a platform upon which I could share my passion for God and also to share more of the knowledge and wisdom I might gain from the Bible, the book which I then believed to be the untainted word of God. And what then had happened is that my mom... Due to a business relationship, she found a copy of the Quran. What had happened was that she wanted to write a magazine for her. Um, she wanted to write an article for a local magazine in Plattekloof, and she wanted to write more about Hajj, due to the fact that the community in Plattekloof uh, became predominantly Muslim. And so she approached the Muslim man to write this article for her regarding Hajj, and he then decided to go to Hajj with, with his family. So she then had to find it within herself to start writing this article through her own knowledge and research. And eventually it had led her to wanting to read the Quran. And so she you know, started studying Islam and started reading the Quran and she started wearing her hijab and eventually she accepted Islam as the one and only faith. And for me at that point in time, I was a... I wouldn't say youth leader, but, you know, I had um, a cell group and we had on Wednesdays we would come together as well uh, with all our different cell groups. And we would, you know, propagate as to what we had learned. We would have like different themes and we would discuss that publicly. And at this point in time, I rejected her choice to, you know, accept this other faith. And I kind of contested her quest to, for this additional knowledge. I could not understand, you know, why aren't you fulfilled within Christianity? So we often debated with one another as well, but with love and compassion, of course. And what then had happened was that oftentimes when we would have cell groups and so forth, you know, I would put the music a little bit louder and we would do praise and worship, you know, just to entice my mother to come back to our faith, 
you know, that, that kind of relationship that we had at that point. I then realized that I need to reevaluate who I want to be in life because this quest of following into my father's footsteps, becoming this, you know, religious leader for my community was starting to wither apart. I did not really feel that desire since my mother started pulling away from me on, on that field. And so I reevaluated who I wanted to be and I decided to go work overseas, you know, just to rediscover myself and to find a platform upon which I could, um, you know, just completely remove myself and, and find out who I am, who, who is Arne at that time. So I then decided to go work abroad for Royal Caribbean as a photographer and also did a bit of marketing and sales for them as well. And it was at the airport that my mom and I started communicating and she held me in a close embracing hug and she prayed a prayer over me. And she prayed to her new God, Allah, a God which was completely foreign to me at that time. And I, like deep down, I kind of rejected it because, you know, I don't want to be associated with that spiritually. But she then prayed to this Allah to send a very big angel with me. Loud. Yes, Alhamdulillah. Um, to send a very big angel with me to guide me and to protect me. And... It was as I left for my flight and I landed in Australia and I got onto my ship where I opened my bag and I realized that my mom had left me with more than just a prayer. She actually put a copy of the Quran in my bag. And on the very first page of this book, she wrote a little note and she said that, listen, Arne, if you want to debate against Muslims one day, you need to understand where they come from. You need to understand why they believe what they believe so that you can debate against them. And so with the love and compassion I have for my mom, I dedicated myself to reading at least one page a day. One page soon turned into two, two into three, and I found myself completing the Quran from cover to cover. Now, it was at this point in time where, you know, my spiritual battle truly began, where I was completely removed from everything that I held dear. I mean, my mom was on the other side of the world. My then fiancé was on the other side of the world, um, completely removed from everything around me. And... In a sense, I felt lost, you know, because I was, I was completely, I was completely separated. But I knew I was exactly where I had to be and that there was still something that was guiding me. I felt a little bit betrayed by my religious leaders that had never educated me regarding Islam, never told me that the Quran believes that there's a prophet named Jesus, never told me that the Quran says that there's only one true God. So I felt a little bit betrayed by that because I feel like it is something that I had to be educated on. And during the time, I felt like I did not really know God because this entire concept of the Trinity was still intrinsic to my nature. It was still something that I had to believe in. It was something that I had taught that this God has three different personalities, the Father, Son and Holy Ghost, and that they are one God. And having read the Quran, I realized that I can no longer truly you know, find that within my foundation because all this makes so much sense that God is absolute and eternal, that he is not begotten, that he also does not beget because he's greater than anything that we could ever perceive and that there's nothing like unto him, as it says in the Holy Quran, chapter 112, verse 124. So I felt like I did not really know God, but I knew that he was right there beside me because Allah says in the Quran that he is right there next to you, as close to your jugular vein. So... This was where my battle truly began, and I decided to then go back into the Bible and into the Torah and Gospel to start a comparative study and to start learning about, you know, but what is the comparisons between these books? Because I know there's a lot of differences, but what was important to me was to understand the comparisons because I knew in that there would be a sense of truth for me. 
And so I applied that rationality through everything that I had learned. When it comes to the concept of God, where it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where Moses, peace be upon him, speaks, and he says, Here is Israel, the Lord our God is one. And Jesus, peace be upon him, confirming that as well in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, where he says the most important commandment is this, Here is Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that just echoing through the Quran as well. And also the concept that no one can ever see God, where Jesus, peace be upon him, says in John chapter 5, verse 37, that you have never heard the voice of God, neither have you seen his shape. And also confirmed in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 to 5. So all these things started to make sense to me, but I had to go deeper than that as well. You know, just the the the, the fundamental concept of Taweed, even though it is the absolute foundation and the most important, I had to understand about the crucifixion. I had to understand the concept of salvation. Um, I had to start grasping the concept of inheritance of sin. You know, what is it that my leaders truly taught? Where does do all these concepts come from? Where did it originate and when was it implemented? So historically for me, it was important to go back into history and to understand exactly where did everything happen? Because at the end of the day, what I realized is that if I want to follow the truth, because Jesus, peace be upon him, says in the Bible, if you, um, if you seek for the truth, you will find it. So if I wanted to follow the truth, I had to go to the roots of everything and to find out exactly where it came from. And if I could distinguish that it comes from God and his prophets, I had to accept it regardless. If I could distinguish that it comes from man, I had to reject it because God and his prophets are superior to man. Yeah. Wow, fascinating. I can see that passion, uh, that passion in your eyes, uh, in, in the way you rattle off the, the, um, the verses, the Quran and the Bible. It's amazing. May Allah bless you always, inshallah. Inshallah, may bless us all. Now you're reading a page of the Quran. Yes. So you, you probably, you, out of South Africa, you're reading the, the page of the Quran every day uh, to honor your moms, uh, yes. basically. And then what's going through your head? Are you still carrying on with life or did everything drop and think, wow? Like what, what, what? And what are the verses that actually got to, what are, what are the concepts of the themes in the Quran that actually really got to you and think, wow? Yes, no, of course. Um, in, when you work on the ship, it is quite intensive. I mean, there is very little free time, you could put it like that, because what you do is you travel from one location to another. So we were in Australia, then we went to New Zealand, um, then we were in Vietnam, then we went to China. Uh, we also spent some time in, in Bangkok as well, in Pattaya. So you travel a lot. Um, so there's the, the workload is intensive. But when it comes to understanding who God is, there's always a part of me that wanted to, you know, it's a part of me that is completely separate from work. It's completely separate from family, but it's something I dedicate myself to because it's important. At the end of the day, that is fundamentally the most important question we can either answer or the most important thing that we can find truth within ourselves. So for me, when I started reading the Quran, firstly, it was it was very difficult to read because it doesn't read like you would read a novel. It doesn't read from the beginning, you know, Adam and Eve was there, they ate off the tree, they were sent down to earth. And, you know, it doesn't read like the Bible. So it was very difficult for me to um, go through the Quran the first time. But eventually I found that the Quran speaks in specific themes and it speaks in certain like almost like a ring, you know, if you were to split a ring open, it's as if the stories are connected with one another and yet they are so far apart. But what the themes teach is just so pure and beautiful because it takes one theme and it completely expresses that. 
But I remember on the ship that um, eventually what I would do is I would write little words in Arabic. So I could start learning the Arabic words. So for instance, I would write Tawakal Nala Allah and I would write that on a little piece of paper and we had little bunk beds. So I put it up with Prestic at the top of my, you know, at the top of my bunk bed. And every now and again, when I'm done reading a page of the Quran, I would go through and start reciting that. So even my Shahada, um, you know, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, I would write that on a piece of paper so I could start learning about the pronunciation of these words and so forth. And at that point in time, I was not completely, you know, I did not completely submit myself into Islam yet. It was still a learning process for me because I would not um, readily accept something if I don't know it's completely from God. Um, and that's also something that I had to find within the deen. If a Mulana comes to me and he says X, Y, and Z, I would go back into the Quran, I would go back into the Sunnah and would see where does that root come from. And if that root is from Allah and Muhammad peace be upon him, then I accept it wholeheartedly, regardless of my own inclination. If I disagree with it, and it is from Allah and his prophet, I need to accept that. Um, so it was it was a very much a learning curve for me in the beginning and having read these verses within the Quran, you know, and finding how it resonated with my upbringing and these comparisons, that is truly what it led me to truth. So you mentioned that it's very, like the Quran, reading the Quran initially, it's very difficult because obviously it's not a novel. Yes. But both, but what's, what I find amazing is both yourself and your mom, self-taught you know you read the Quran yeah. and it just shows you how, how important sincerity is yeah in, in finding God yes definitely and that's also a struggle when it comes to dawah because a lot of people that you speak to no matter you know I wouldn't say that it, it happens often but with some people is that you, you can produce so much truth to them and they can see the truth and yet, due to their upbringing, due to where they come from, due to the ties that they have within this dunya, within this world, they find it very difficult to let go of that. Because oftentimes they feel as if, okay, now I need to completely reject all the people that I've met my entire life. I need to completely cut ties with them and all these things. But that's not necessarily the case. It is a relationship between you and the rub, between you and the creator, which is absolute and eternal. And at the end of the day, that is what is most important. It's not about the relationship that you have with your family. It's not about the relationship that you have with your friends. I mean, even for me, I lost a lot of my friends, but I still have friends that are very dear to me and very dear to my heart that are all over, you know, all over the world at this point, but they still keep in contact with me because they are dear to me as friends. But a lot of the friends that I used to have, especially when it came to my time in Stellenbosch when I studied there, um, you know, normally we would have these rituals. We would go to a local club or something and we would go play pool and we would spend time with one another and they would be drinking and dancing and all these things. But once I accepted Islam and I realized that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that um, alcohol and gambling is Satan's handiwork, abstain from it so that you may prosper, I could no longer indulge in that. So there had to be a separation from myself in this lifestyle. But there was a time at which I would still attend these meetings and I would still, you know, spend time with my friends, you know, trying to build the, within that community. But at the same time, I could not indulge. And eventually what had happened was that I completely separated myself from my friends. And it was something that happened quite naturally. It wasn't that, you know, one day I decided that I no longer want to see you or it came from them either. Um, it was just as if we kind of grew apart. But we need to realize that fundamentally, the most important connection that we have is with Allah, because He comes first. No matter if it is our family, our business, um, commercially, or the money that we attain, or the fame that we have, what is most important is Allah, and He always needs to come first. So you travel all over the world, right? And then you kind of found Islam. What happened when you came back? Did your mom know that you 
Yes, when I decided to become Muslim, it was just before Ramadan. And there was another brother, Muhammad, on the ship that um, basically took me through the basic steps of Islam. He basically took me through, you know, the five pillars. At that time, I could not remember the five pillars. I knew about the Shahada and I knew about making Salah. And that to me was most important. Um, and he also taught me about the importance of Ramadan. At that point in time, I did not, I did not fast. I did not, you know, completely submit myself within this, you know, this way of life as of yet, because it was still a learning curve for me. I had to understand the rationality behind it. Um, for instance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us um, that he has prescribed fasting upon us so that we can learn self-restraint. And that also reflects within the prophets, within the Torah and the gospel, because they also had to fast in order to um, build in self-restraint, in order to grow closer to, you know, their creator. Um, so during this time, I then embraced Islam. And when I came back, I came back as a Muslim wholeheartedly. But it wasn't something that, you know, I had to go out there and propagate. In the beginning for me to admit that I'm a Muslim, even in company, was something that was a little bit difficult. There was still something that was holding me back. But I think that had to do with pride. Um, because, you know, I still had this background. I still had these connections within the church. I still had these people that... You know, I was a part of their community. So for me to go wholeheartedly and tell them that, listen, guys, I'm a Muslim and, you know, you need to accept me for that. That was still very difficult for me. Um, at that point in time, when I came back, my fiance was also a Christian. So in that relationship, um, there was also a lot of things that we had to uncover, a lot of things that we had to learn from one another. And oftentimes with my mother-in-law now, with her mom, I had to learn how to communicate and how to do da'wah because she was often the person to come and to challenge me with biblical scriptures and we had to discuss and go through these scriptures and I'd learned a lot, especially when it came to um, different concepts that I did not necessarily think of within Christianity because I think from her perspective in the beginning, she still wanted to, you know, pull me back to Christianity in a sense. Um, but I think after a while she realized that, you know, w what I am saying is, you know, from me and it is truth in a, in a specific sphere. And at that point in time, she also agreed with me on a lot of points. But what had happened was that oftentimes we would debate with one another and then my wife would talk to me privately and she would say that, you know, you know, you need to be a little bit softer. Maybe try and sit down because your body language is very strong. You know, um, maybe try to approach it in a different means about this verse and so forth. Um, you know, speak a bit more from your perspective. Don't always propagate directly from the verses. So there was a lot of things that I had to learn in this entire process. And um, a Quranic verse that actually resonates with us is in the Holy Quran, chapter 16, verse 125, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that invite all to the way of thy Lord with wisdom and beautiful preaching and argue with them in ways that are best and most gracious. So at the end of the day, we need to understand to, you know, bring this message forward with love and compassion and to to debate with, with one another, but, you know, in a, in a way that is acceptable, in a way that is soft, in a way that people can relate to. And actually, if they don't agree with you, even they can see that you're doing it with respect and to build bridges. Indeed. Tell me about your first experience of Salah, of prayer. Yes. How, do you, how did that feel? Yes, in the beginning for me, you know, I want to start from the very beginning. In the beginning regarding hudu, because it, it is something that also resonates within the, um, within the Bible, that Moses and Aaron would go, um, before they go into the temple, they would wash their hands and feet before they had to pray. So it was, it was something that resonated with me, and I, I, kind of, I kind of thought about why it is not practiced within Christianity anymore. 
Um, and that was something that I started to learn, you know, trying to learn, you know, what hand to use to wash with, um, how to do the entire hudu process and why it is important. Because at the end of the day, it's not a physical wash. It is a spiritual connection to make that intention to tell, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that, listen, I'm making this intention from myself, from my body to cleanse myself so that I can be as pure as I possibly can pre- represent myself in front of you when I make my salah. Um, and for me as well, I'm left-handed. So, you know, having to use your right hand when it comes to, you know, touching your face and putting water in your mouth, there was, there was a very, um, you know, it was a very intricate learning process because it wasn't something that I was familiar with. And eventually when I got into the Salah, you know, in the beginning I could not necessarily make the entire, you know, the entire Salah. So I had to learn that in in little steps. So I would often take a little recording device and I would, you know, play that recording over and over and over and over until I know the entire, you know, how to make the first step of the Salah and um, how to make the prostration. And so, so it was very much a learning curve. It wasn't as if I just got into, you know, making Salah and then I got it done. But the one thing that I can say is that when your forehead is on the ground and you realize, and you realize that the only thing that you're submitting to is the creator and that none of his creation is worthy of that. That is something that is so pure that I think a lot of people that are born into Islam do not understand the purity of it. Because in Christianity, you don't have that concept. You don't have that concept of something that is so superior that it cannot be defined in words, something that is so superior that it cannot be perceived with the eyes or, or you know, completely felt emotionally because it is so much greater than us. I mean, Your Rahman, Your Rahim, most merciful, most forgiving. It is something that we can't, sorry, I'm getting emotional, but it's something that we can't equate. And I think that when you put your forehead to the ground and you feel that connection with your creator, it is, it is remarkable to experience that, that complete submission and that complete humility. Because at the end of the day, you can't be proud in that position. You can't say that, you know, I am a president or I'm, you know, a public speaker or I'm a CEO of a company. You are in complete submission. That is at your most vulnerable. So it, 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 to me, it was a very pure and, um, you know, to experience the entire process. It's not just about going on the ground and putting your head to the ground and saying a prayer. It's from the very point at which you make your intention to say that I'm doing this for you, my creator. The only thing I submit to, the only thing I bow to, the only thing I worship, and then going through that entire process. That is the beauty. Yeah. So, so my understanding that in, in the Bible, um, you're also not allowed to drink. Yes. To drink alcohol. Yes. Um, in the Bible... Prophets used to bow down. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, what is Christianity according to you? What is what is what is missing there? That is, that's a very loaded question. I think that, you know, when it comes to that question, you kind of need to break it down because you can go into everything. Um, you can go into the concept of God. Um, you can, can go into the concept of uh, inheritance of sin. You can go into the concept of forgiveness of sin. You can go into the concept of lifestyle, about what I'm you eat. And, yes. Okay. So from a lifestyle perspective, um, it is important to understand that Jesus, peace be upon him, also said that he was, you know, he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets before him. He did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it in his life, meaning that he did not come to take any of the laws that came prior to him to take it away. However, in Christianity, what had happened was that some of these these laws that are now changed, um, it, it changed through man and the interpretation of what Jesus, peace be upon him, had said and what had been recorded. Now, we know from an Islamic perspective 
that the Bible itself is not the untainted word of God. We do believe that it contains the word of God, but we know that it has been unta- that it has been tainted. And you can go to any scholar that is renowned within theology and they'll tell you the same because the authors of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for instance, are completely unknown. Nobody knows the noti- motivation of it. And there are many verses that had been altered. For instance, um, 1 John 5 verse 7, where it says that our three that bear record in the heavens, it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That verse is non-existent in that form. It says that there are three that bear witness of Jesus. Um, and if you read the other translations, that is what would be propagated. And another example would be in John chapter 3, verse 16, where it says that Jesus, peace be upon him, is the begotten Son of God. Um, the word begotten is not to be found there, um, because Jesus, peace be upon him, in the biblical perspective, and through the Semitic languages, through the use of Son of God, he is the Son of God. Because we, Islamically, we don't accept that because we know that the rub is greater than, than any of that to, to have a son. But biblically, it means that he's a prophet because David is called the son of God. Jesus, peace be upon him, calls um, Adam the son of God. Um, uh, Ishmael is a son of God. So all these prophets are perceived as being the sons and daughters of God. But through the lifestyle itself, when Jesus, peace be upon him, says that he did not come to change the law of the prophets before him, he came to fulfill it in his life, meaning that he came to implement it, he came to fulfill it. Now, a lot of Christian missionaries would say that, no, he came to change it because he fulfilled the law by dying on the cross. But if you ask them that, listen, okay, if you believe that the law is fulfilled, is Jesus, peace be upon him, going to come back? And is he going to bring justice? Then they would tell you, yes. But then you can tell them, but listen, it's not fulfilled then. But what is interesting is that some of the, these perspectives, it has been changed because, for instance, to give you the concept of, um, you know, eating pork in the Old Testament, it's completely prohibited. Jesus, peace be upon him, he followed the Jewish law. He himself never ate pork. But what had happened was that he was in the fields with his disciples and they started to pick grain because they were hungry. And that was on the Sabbath day. So the Jews were absolutely furious about that. And also that they had to eat without performing, you know, their, their obligatory to wash their hands and so forth. And then what had happened was that they challenged Jesus, peace be upon him. And they said that, listen, how can you allow them to do that? You know, and then he said, what goes into your mouth is not what is important, but what goes out. So it was within that context. But then what had happened was that authors that came after that, they then changed the words and said that you can eat whatever you want to, because it's not important what you put in your mouth. But that is not what Jesus, peace be upon him, had said. But then Polis said, if you go into the market, you can eat of the meat, whatever you want to. But that is not never what Jesus, peace be upon him, had propagated. So that was always a law that was instituted. Um, and regarding the concept, so, so um, eating pork at the end of the day is, is completely prohibited uh, by Jesus, peace be upon him, because he did not come to change the law of the prophets. And in that verse, he also continues and he says that if you but so change one jit or tottle in the law that came before me, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you propagate that as well, you would be the least in the kingdom of heaven. So at the end of the day, we need to realize we need to hold on to these laws that were propagated before him. And regarding the concept of alcohol, in the Bible it says that, um, you know, alcohol is prohibited completely. But when you read the New Testament, the first miracle Jesus, peace be upon him, performed, according to the Bible, is that he turned water into wine. There was a big party that was starting to run out of alcohol. And the first thing he did was to go create more alcohol for the people to consume and to drink. But at the end of the day, you need to ask yourself, is this truly a reflection upon a prophet of God? Would he truly go out there to um, want people to become intoxicated? Because intoxication at the end of the day is one of the greatest causes of death. 
um, even in that time, you know, there's the causes when it comes to more sensitive things like um, sexual assault. It's the cause of, you know, speaking over your tongue, not completely perceiving as to what you're projecting within society. Um, and today it's one of the biggest causes when it comes to people dying on our roads because they are intoxicated, they get behind the wheel and they need to go somewhere and they, they cause an accident and an, an innocent person could die. So at the end of the day, we need to realize that a lot of these verses within the Bible have been changed. A lot of these stories have been changed. Therefore, we say that the Bible as it is today does contain the words of God, but it does not contain the untainted word of God. Yes. And as we've already, you know, brought some of these verses forward. How difficult was it for you? So you're coming back, you started making salah. Tell us about your Ramadan, your first your first experience of Ramadan. The first time I actively partook in Ramadan was the year after I embraced. So it was, I embraced Islam and then it was Ramadan and I basically had to learn the ropes, you know, how to make salah and all these things. I started to learn. It wasn't complete as of yet. Um, I would say that the only time at which I became, you know, complete in performing salah and all these things only happened about a year and a half to two years after that because it is a learning process for for, no, for someone that hasn't been raised in that environment um, but the first time I partook in Ramadan was very difficult for me okay it was it was something that I had to I had to relearn as to how to do it was something that was completely against my physical nature because I was not used to this concept of fasting to be completely removed from food and drink is something that was completely foreign to my concept but in the process what I discovered is that in the first couple of weeks it was completely you know it was completely unnatural to me it was very difficult but eventually what I had found is that this complete separation of my internal instincts to have food and to, um, you know, have interaction and all these things, completely removing myself from that allowed me to enter into a different mindset within myself and spiritually also to grow closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to reconnect on a, on a level that I've never really had the opportunity to connect to. And as soon as you are at your most vulnerable, especially when it, when it comes to Salah as well, but physically, as soon as you are at your most vulnerable, there is a sense of spiritual growth that, that takes place that you cannot truly fathom in words because you are removed from your senses in the sense of you are not dependent upon them anymore. And as I grew within that Ramadan, I realized that this is a very good way to connect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and also to learn how to control these desires and drives that are innate to our nature. Because as soon as you can learn to say no to having food, you can basically say no to to many things in life. And that is truly what I what I what captivated me within that experience. So you mentioned fiancés, how did that talk how did that talk happen between you and, and your fiance? Yes. Probably is she your wife now? Yes, she is my wife, yes. Um it was it was rather difficult, uh, I would be honest, because at the end of the day, we need to realize that society has a perspective of Islam that it comes from um, social media, because the media projects a certain image of Islam, and that is what is internalized within society, and that is truly what they believe. And I can speak from experience, because that is the same concept that I have. I embraced Islam two years after 9-1-1, and when 9-11 happened, it was it was a cultural shock for everybody around the world. It was something that was so, you know, uh, frightening within the realm of terrorism that it shocked everyone. And it was always connected to this concept of Islam, that Islam did this, the Muslims did this. But at the end of the day, when you have a 
excuse me, when you have that perspective, it is difficult to move away from it. And in our relationship, she still had that concept. So she would perceive me or, you know, there there would always be in the back of her mind that this man is going to become a dictator. He's going to tell me, you know, you have to wear your hijab. You have to dress modestly. You have to now come XLI. You have to make me food now. Um, You have to stay at home and take care of the kids. That is the kind of concept that she had because it is something that is formed within media. And all too seldom do society see the beauty and the respect that um, Muslim mas and that that woman and the female character has within Islam. And I mean, I can speak from experience. Uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him, tells us that Jannah lies within the feet of your mother or at the feet of your mother. And that is truly where my door to the Quran lied, was that... You know, I was introduced to Islam by the feet of my mother, by her taking care of me and nurturing me and introducing me to Islam by putting a Quran in my bag. And uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him, also tells us that we need to treat um, women with gently and we need to be, um, you know, treat them with humility and we need to encourage them to educate and we need to encourage them to become self-sustaining and to provide for themselves. So in our relationship, you know, having to show her the other side of Islam, not that is portrayed by you know, media, it truly opened her eyes as well. And Alhamdulillah, she also embraced Islam. But Allah is taking her upon her own journey. At the end of the day, it's not for me to dictate what her journey should be. So I encourage her a lot. And I mean, she's extremely intelligent when it comes to literature. She's busy with a master's degree. And in this process as well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is using her because she's starting to think about things that are not necessarily perceived within social media. So she's starting to write these articles um, to introduce people towards Islam, but to speak about topics that are not necessarily easily acceptable. So, you know, Allah has his way with us. So, Alhamdulillah. So, as a community, I'm saying as a Muslim community, yes. are we doing enough in terms of ta'af? I don't think that we would ever reach a point where we would be doing enough. But I think that, especially in the Western Cape, we are becoming a bit lax. We are a little bit too comfortable because at the point of time for us as Muslims, we feel like we have the truth and it is not necessarily our obligation to go out there and to propagate it. Somebody else is going to do it. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Holy Quran, chapter 41, verse 33, he says that who is better in speech than he who invites towards Allah and does righteous deeds and says that I am of the Muslims. Therefore, it is an honor to do da'wah. It is an honor to go out there and to invite people towards Islam. And I think it is important for everybody within our society to realize that this obligation is upon their shoulders. And it's upon their shoulders within the communities they find themselves. Might it be at a workplace, might it be at a friend's gathering, might it be at a birthday party or a wedding. There will always be an opportunity to speak about da'wah and to do da'wah and to speak about the concept of ta'weed. That is the most important thing to touch on. Because I think a lot of people from other religions, they don't necessarily understand that in Islam, we believe in one creator. We believe that he's unseen. We believe that he's not begotten. And it is important for us to project that concept so that they can find it within themselves to um, build that commonality. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also tells us in the Holy Quran, chapter 3, verse 64, he says, let us come to common terms as between us and you. The very first term is that we shall worship none but Allah, that we shall not ascribe any partners to him, that we shall not make among ourselves any lords or patrons. Therefore, you know, coming to common ground just about the concept of Taweed, that is already you doing da'wah, and that's you placing the seed within their hearts. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, on the day of resurrection, the only sin he will never forgive is associating partners with him. As he says in the Quran chapter 4 verse 116. So if we can overcome the concept of, you know, ascribing partners to Allah, we've already won. 
because that is the most important thing to portray. And then everything else after that falls into place. Because as soon as a person that realizes that Allah cannot be seen, that it cannot be perceived, then it is greater, absolute and internal, and he either goes into his... Um, his temple if he's a Hindu or he goes into his church if he's a Christian and he realizes that listen we are worshiping a man or we are worshiping an image that we should turn away from this then they will seek Islam and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inshallah will guide them and, and, and grant them that but I think all too often in our societies we don't realize how easy it is to do dawah and oftentimes if I find myself in a situation where I'm speaking to an absolute stranger and I don't touch on the concept of Taweed or to bring them towards the concept of Islam or to invite them in some way. And inviting them is not asking them to make the shahada. Um, it's about just planting that seed, inviting them to the concept of Taweed by just dispersing knowledge. But if I don't find myself you know, in the position where I can do that, oftentimes I feel guilty because I know that the, cap the capacities and the, the, the everything that I have within myself is able to bring a person towards that concept, is able to bring a person towards that conversation. So it is, you know, it's pinnacle to us to do that and to invite all to the way of Allah. So how do we, how do we plant that seed with wisdom and compassion? Like, let's say you're having, we at a party. Yes. And we're at the corporate, sort of a corporate get-together, mm. you know, and uh, many of us are. How do you plant that seed with, with compassion, with love, with mercy? Of course. Besides it, being straight up front. Yes, no, no, no. We never, in, in Dawa, you never want to be straight up front because people will oftentimes then put up a wall and they would say that, you know, um, they, they, would, they might even entertain you. They might even say, ah, oh, interesting and all these things, but they would be completely blank. They wouldn't even follow the conversation. But a, a good way to interact with people is to ask them profound questions. You know, what do you believe is the purpose of life? You know, where do you believe that human beings come from? Um, do you believe that this universe just happened per chance? You know, start intriguing conversations with them because that would allow you to bring them back to the concept of Taweed. And oftentimes people will ask you questions. They might come to you and if you're a sister, they might ask, why do you wear hijab? Um, why don't you drink alcohol at this party? Um, why don't you engage in, you know, all these social events that we engage with? So there's a lot of things that people come to you with and, they, and then a means of you to bring them back to the concept of Taweed is to say that, in order for you to understand the answer to this question, it is very important for you to understand the concept of Islam and where I come from and what my foundation is. Then you go directly. Um, there's only one God. This is what we believe, that he's absolute and eternal, that he begets not and that he's not begotten. And then you speak about the oneness, that we believe that God is only one without a second. Then you bring them back to the revelation, that you say that this absolute and eternal God would surely not leave us without a manual in life. And as you progress in your conversation, it's always good to get confirmation. You would ask a person, um, once you've discussed the concept of God, for instance, you can use um, either the the discussion about causality, or you can sp speak about the concept of absolute design. Um, so there's a lot of ways of bringing people to this rationalization of, of the existence of God. And then once you have that conversation, you ask, does this make sense to you as to what I believe? And then they will confirm or they would say that I don't agree with this concept. And then you clarified it a bit more. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Holy Quran that he's created this religion to be superior to all the others. Because truly, if you take a person through these steps and they are rational and true to themselves and within their hearts, they will accept what you're telling them. Because it is absolute, it is truth. And we are born with this truth. That is why Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that we are born as Muslims because we are born in complete submission to Allah. And that is something that is intrinsic to us. I mean, you can find that, um, you know, through archaeological evidence all over the world, that people always found a way to worship something that's greater than them, because it's intrinsic to our nature to submit to something that's greater. 
And as you get this confirmation, you take them through and you speak about the revelation. This is the revelation that was given to us. And you can use many, you know, miraculous proofs of the Quran. Um, for instance, that it has been preserved for so many years and yet people try to throw it and try to corrupt it and yet they were not able to. Or you can speak about that Muhammad, peace be upon him, was an unlettered man and yet it is one of the greatest works of poetry. Or you can speak about the scientific miracles, for instance, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the heavens and the earth would join together as one unit of creation and we clothe them asunder and from every living thing we created it from water and all these things that are even confirmed within you know our established um, rationality and our established means of reasoning as absolute truths of the universe so you can there's many ways of proving the revelation and then you say but this prophet that was given to us his name is muhammad peace be upon him and that is why we accept him is for this and this reason and um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not leave us upon this earth without a guide, without somebody showing us what the absolute truth is, because all the other revelations that came before him were tainted, and therefore we need to accept him as a prophet, because there was no reason for him to lie as to what he had doing. He was not uh, delusional. Um, he was not, you know, psychotic, astaghfirullah, and all these things. So you can guide them through this means of rationality, and you can go into every single point. For instance, if you speak about the prophet and his truthfulness, you would speak about um, that even his enemies called him the most truthful. And they would even use him as a third party to differentiate between what is right and wrong. They would even sometimes keep, his, keep their valuables with him. And even though they wrote against the prophet, they never said that he was a liar. So there's a lot of ways of proving their truthfulness. And um, regarding, uh, you know, if he was delusional, there was a time at which... Um, the Prophet, peace be upon him, when his son had died at a very young age, um, his son Ibrahim. And it, it, it so happened that there was an eclipse of the sun and the moon. And the people at that time said that, wow, this is a sign from God. Truly, he is a prophet. But that was the perfect time for him to say that, listen, yes, I am a, I am a prophet. Yeah, I stand. The sun and the moon is mourning for my son. But he did not say that. He went completely the opposite, and he says that the, the sun and the moon mourns for no man, nor for their death, nor their birth. Meaning that he was truly sincere, he was truly truthful, but a delusional man at that time would say that, yes, here I am, I'm a prophet, you can see this. So there's a lot of ways of bringing people to these different concepts. But um, in our organization, our era, we use this, this method of approaching people because it is rational. It's a good way to connect to others and to take them through these conversations. And we call this GoRap. The G would be the existence of God. The O would be the oneness of God. And then we would speak about the revelation and prophethood. So G-O-R-A-P. So that is, that is basically, you know, the, the, the process that we take people through to, to speak about Dawah. And it's something that once you, once you understand how to do it, it is truly something you can bring into every conversation. Because as soon as you ask a person at a party a profound question about what do you believe is the purpose, purpose of life? That is truly something that every single individual sometime in their life, maybe they were 13 or they were already in their mid-20s, it's truly something that somebody sat down and thought of. Because everything in life has a, a purpose. Even if you go to an earthworm, an earthworm has a specific purpose on earth. You know, to, to, to cultivate the ground and to, you know, ensure that, um, you know, it is food within the food chain and to um, ensure the growth of plants and trees and all these things. So even an earthworm has a purpose. And so we can go through anything that is created on earth. It has, it has a purpose. So what is the purpose of humanity? You know, and the only way you can answer that is by an objective truth, which is the Holy Quran. Because in the in the in the Holy Quran, it, it tells us exactly the answers to all these profound questions. Amazing! We can, we can talk all, Alhamdulillah. all day. Alhamdulillah. 
we always ask this question and i know it's a very unfair question for you <laughs> what is the your, what is the most profound or what is one of your most profound verses in the quran um for me the most profound verse in the quran is in the quran chapter 39 verse 53 where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O oh, my servants who've transgressed against themselves by sinning, do not despair for the mercy of Allah. Indeed, Allah forgives all sins, for he's the forgiving and merciful. And that was truly the crux when it comes to Christianity. Because in, in my path, and I think in many, many Christians' path upon this journey, there was always something that, that sticks at the back of your head, is that, Does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala need blood sacrifice in order to forgive someone of their sins? Because in the book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22, Paulus says that the only way we are to attain salvation is through the sacrifice of blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Meaning that without a blood sacrifice, an ultimate sacrifice, there can be no forgiveness. And having found this verse within the Quran, it resonated within me because I understood that if I submit to this creator, he will give me forgiveness. But then it was not enough for me. It was never enough for me to just find this truth. I had to understand where it comes from, you know, and what the Bible truly teaches. So having gone back to the Torah, I had to realize that, listen, this is not the concept. Because if you read in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 24, It says that the son will not be put to death for the sins of the father. Neither shall the father be put to death for the sins of the son. Every man shall die in his own sins. Meaning that no other man, no other being can ever die for the sins of somebody else. Therefore, Jesus, peace be upon him, could not die for our sins. It is absolutely against the decree of God. But it goes further than this. In Exodus chapter 23 verse 7, it says that the innocent and righteous slay they not, for I will not justify the sins of the wicked. Therefore, no innocent being, no innocent person, no innocent anything can die for the sins of another. But what is even further interesting is that God never decreed that the forgiveness of sin is exclusive to blood sacrifice. If you read the book of Leviticus, where it speaks about, you know, the sacrifice and the bigger the community, the bigger the sacrifice must be. It is a way to show penance to God. The very first time that God asked for sacrifice Um, he only accepted the blood sacrifice, yes, because it is a greater sacrifice for man to, to sacrifice something that has a life that could live on and bring out more pleasures and more reward. Um, and in that time, reward was found in cattle. And he rejected the one that was of plants because to grow a plant is something that can, you know, just happen. You just need a seed and it grows. So the blood sacrifice is greater, but he never asked them to sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. It was always as a way to show their penance, to show their, their, their glorification of the creator for giving them the sustenance that they have. And if you read the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 11 to 20, God speaks directly about this. And he says, the sacrifices that you bring here before me, who has asked this of you, this trembling of my calls? I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and rams. Come now, take this away from me. Let us reason with one another, says the Lord. Defend the oppressed, stand up for the widow, and plead the case of the orphan. Come now, let us settle this matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will be as white as wool, or as soft as wool. So even in this, God says that, take these sacrifices away from me. I have no pleasure in this blood. This is not truly what I want from you. What I want from you is complete submission. I want you to follow my decrees. I want you to follow my laws. I want you to protect the people that are around you and seek justice. And then I will give you forgiveness. But if you go into the New Testament, it is exactly what Jesus, peace be upon him, had taught as well. Because whenever he said that if you pray out to God, the first thing he said is, O oh, Father, 
forgive us of our sins and have us forgive those who transgressed against us so we might gain your forgiveness. He never spoke about blood. And he said that what his mission is, is that he came to bring the sinners to repentance, meaning that he came to those who are sinful. He came to bring them to repentance. He did not say, I came um, to sacrifice myself upon a cross for the salvation of others. So if you, if you read the Bible and you get an understanding holistically as to what God had taught, it was never bound by this blood sacrifice. But then what had happened is that in the book of Hebrews, Paul has had to propagate that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness because he had to justify what Jesus, peace be upon him, had to die on the cross. But if you read in the book of John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus, peace be upon him, cries out to God and he says, O Lord, the work which you have sent me to do upon this earth is complete. I am ready to return to you. And this is long before the crucifixion. Because the concept of salvation, the concept of forgiveness, the concept of inheritance of sin, everything that is propagated within the books that came after the Gospels is non-existent within the Old Testament. So for me, having to find these rationalities and having to find exactly what the cause and the root arguments for these concepts are was pinnacle to, to, to uh, my Amazing. growth. Yes, thank, you, thank you for sharing that. Just one last question. Is what, what is next for Ashraf? Well, at the moment, I'm working with the Dao organization. And I mean, there's a lot of growth that needs, to be take, that needs to take place within my being. I mean, I have all this knowledge and I have everything that I want to share passionately and all these things, but I can't just go out there and, you know, propagate to the world. I kind of need to build my foundation. And the foundation that I had found is within the organization IERA, which is Islamic Education and Research Academy. And the, the, the means of nurturing that I'm finding within this organization is absolutely amazing. Um, the people that are there to support me to teach me how the organization runs and also to teach me a bit more about you know how to organize different events how to do street tower and they also you know help me a lot when it comes to the booklets and things we want to hand out so having the foundation is very important but what is next for me is to go within the communities and I'm I'm trying to build a, a means where people can come and they can connect and they can learn and they can Go out there and perform dawah because we, we perceive this concept of dawah as something that is greater than us, something that we cannot achieve or something that we can only achieve once we become a Dr. Zakir Naik or Ahmadidat or, you know, Abdurrahman Green or, you know, all these famous speakers within dawah. But that is not the case. Dawah starts within every single individual and it starts within their heart and their desire to do work for Allah. Because at the end of the day, that is a way for us to um, connect to Allah and to spread this message and also to follow within the footsteps of the prophets that came before us because that was the mission that they were always sent with was to protect, to guide and to to educate and that is basically you know the footsteps that I want to follow, the footsteps that I want to forge for people as well to connect to and also to learn more and my purpose is to educate firstly, I think that is most important and to um, go out there and to, to spread the message of truth and to allow people that are of different faiths to understand truly what the essence of Islam is, not to, you know, turn them and to make them accept Islam, because that is not my purpose. My purpose is truly just to educate them, to tell them about my journey, to tell them about the things that I had discovered, and when it comes to the different concepts we've already discussed, and to try and support them in a sense and to allow them to grow within this dean if it's their choice. Inshallah, may Allah bless you and may Allah guide you as well in terms of propagating Islam effectively, especially within your community as well. Shukran so much, brother, but may Allah guide us all, inshallah. Inshallah, inshallah. One last question. Yes, what, of course. what is the purpose of life? The purpose of life. Now, 
when you are when you are born within within life itself there's always that intrinsic desire that we've already discussed to connect your rub and truly if you follow a life in seeking of truth no matter what tribulation that you go through no matter what difficulties you face and no matter what evil falls upon your path you will always have that connection because that's a foundation that would never fail as allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the foundation that we have is islam and that is the most important and in islam that connection with him and once you have that foundation once you have that pillar which is the very first pillar in in islam as well once you have that 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 pillar it is something that can never go away no matter if you lose your your job no matter if you lose your family no matter if you're stranded on an island somewhere if you have a connection with your rabb you will always have something and no matter what tribulation that you go through you will always have a connection you will always be able to grow it might not be physically you might not be healthy physically but spiritually you will grow spiritually you become stronger and you have you'll grow closer connection and truly the purpose of life is to worship this rub and to connect to this rub in that sense because once you have that no matter what trial and tribulation you go through everything will be answered so if a person even asks you know why is there evil in this world that would not be something that faces you because you understand that no matter what you go through it is within the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if for instance you drive on the road and you get a puncture and you need to go to the the place to get your your tire removed that might be Allah taking you to that place so that you can go speak to the person that's going to service you he might say um sir this is going to cost you you know 500 rand to fix then you say thank you so much may i ask you a question you know what do you think the purpose of life is You know we can just have a conversation while while you assist me and that is your way of doing dawa that is your way of connecting to people that are around you in this world because Allah will never put something on your path if he does not want you to be in that situation for a specific purpose yes it's been amazing meeting you alhamdulillah thank you so much shukran so much brother it was a pleasure to be here and to our listeners walaikum salam rahmatullahi wa barakatuh so that's it for today's show we hope we added value we hope you enjoyed it but most of all we hope our guest is inspired to live with purpose Don't forget to send us your suggestions via info at accidentalmuslims.com If you know anybody out there that is inspiring, that's leading, that's living with purpose, please uh, do contact us. And remember, feedback is our oxygen. So follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope you enjoyed. God bless. Assalamu alaikum. رباه عفوك إني للنور مدت يداي نزعت أسرار قلبي وجئت ألقي أسايا رباه عفوك إني للنور مدت يداي نزعت أسرار قلبي وجئت ألقي أسايا وأشتكي طي صدري دربا سحيق العطايا به بدأت ولكن لم أدري ما منتهايا لم أدري يأسي فيه ولا عرفت هدايا ولا عرفت ظلامي ولا عرفت ضحايا ولا لغيرك دوا يا رب يوم الندايا يا 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 رجائي يا رجائي يا رجائي
أنت صباحي مصفد بمسايا فاسكب ضياءك إني ضمآن ضل صدايا إليك أنت صباحي مصفد بمسايا فاسكب ضياءك إني ضمآن ضل صدايا لم أدر من أين بعد أسقي جنين الركايا وشطوا لا ما فيه يطفي الأغافي حجايا رحماك يا ربي إني وزورقي والخطايا في لجة ليس فيها من الضياء بقايا جفت وغاضت ولكن ما زلت أزجي رجايا يا Yeah.